Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about uh, President Trump's refusal to rename military bases. And then we're joined by Noah Tolley, the director of the Center for Urban Engagement at Wheaton College. That's coming up now here on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us on this sunny Thursday afternoon. As always, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, uh, The Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com, and our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. That does help us out. We're grateful for those of you who listen to the podcast. Ian, uh, a beautiful day outside. How is your Thursday going today? I am currently sitting in this beautiful outdoors. Oh, which I <laughs> Whoa, I'm not in the treehouse, but okay. I am. I am on the patio to call it a patio. You know, I've referenced this a couple of times. It's not really a pat. It's a platform. It's it's a boring wood platform, but I'm outside and I'm staring at the beautiful puffy clouds and I'm quite happy. That is awesome. If you hear some banging in my house here uh, after the dog incident the other day. Now, today we're getting our front door replaced. So there's been a lot of banging going on. So the beauties of recording from home, I suppose. Is, is Peppa uh, going to make an, an appearance today? No, I don't think so. I think uh, that was a one time deal. Hopefully you do know another couple, another week or two here. We're getting a second dog. I told you this already, I believe. Oh, uh, yeah. So it just it might get out of control. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> you, you and me both. <laughs> uh Hey, wanted to start off with a couple different stories that are all uh, kind of uh, loosely tied together. So let me touch on all three of these, and then I would love your your thoughts on any one of these or the, the bigger picture. The first is this. President Trump today said he will, quote, not even consider renaming military bases that are honoring Confederates. He says our history as the greatest nation in the world will not be tampered with. Respect our military, he tweeted. Uh, he said that they are part of a great American heritage. This is all being done in the midst of uh, kind of one of the things that's happening at a lot of the protests now uh, is that statues in the U.S. and around the world are starting to be beheaded and torn uh-huh. down amongst the protests. Right. Public monuments. You think Jefferson Davis, Christopher Columbus, uh, Robert E. Lee, I think, had, had one taken down. There's a lot of monuments now being taken down and kind of symbolically being thrown into the river or thrown into a lake. We see a lot of these going on. Uh, and then in the Southern Baptist world, the Southern Baptist president, J.D. Greer, uh, he symbolically yesterday retired a gavel that is always used at the uh, Southern Baptist Convention meetings. Uh, because it is from their second president, who was a known slaveholder mm-hmm. uh, back in the day. Uh, and so all of these, his name is John A. Brodus. He was a Confederacy supporter and a founding faculty member of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. <clears throat> and so J.D. Greer came out yesterday and said, we're not going to use this gavel anymore. Uh, he said, we don't want to erase our history, but it is time for this gavel to go back into the display case at the executive committee offices So it's not saying we're getting rid of it, but we're not going to use it anymore. And I thought all of those tied together under this interesting uh, conversation, this umbrella. What do you think about kind of this mass? um, Some people would say erasing of history. Some people would say that in a positive way. We're we're erasing the the worst parts of our history and not celebrating them anymore. Other people saying 
Uh, no, this is our history. Uh, and so we can't just kind of do away with it. Um, some people calling J.D. Greer on the Southern Baptist side. OK, it's one thing to do a gavel. But what about all of the institutions that are named after people who were slaveholders or or racist back in the day. And so it kind of opens up Pandora's box for him a little bit. I'm curious, Ian, with all of those different stories and all that you see going on, kind of where do you, what, what are your thoughts on all of this? Okay, I'm going to try to navigate this uh, carefully. Again, yeah, you and I, I mean, we typically say things like this, but in particular the last month or so, like we, we really want to assume a posture of listener and learner. You and I are yeah. both white male evangelical pastors. Uh, I was thinking of an experience that I had when my brothers and I were in Munich, Germany, and we had a couple of different walking tours. And one of the things that I found so fascinating when we were there, because as you know, Germany has some dark history in their past as well. And so this really brilliant walking tour guide would show us what they called these like hidden monuments. There were these kind of nondescript it was often like a plaque embedded in a wall or a stone as a part of the cobblestone path that the locals knew what it meant or what it was pointing to or what it was commemorating, but it wasn't some massive statue maybe venerating the person. And I remember being so compelled by that. Like we, we don't want to forget our brutal past, but we also don't want to venerate it. And I, I think that there is a really solid point that a lot of people are making these statues I hear often the case like, well, we can't just erase history because that statue should be there so that a little boy can ask, Papa, what's that? And I can tell them this awful history. We should be teaching that. We have spheres where that kind of education should be taking place, not only at home, but also in our schools. I, I do think that there actually is a pretty solid case that statues venerating and honoring people that stood for things that are not consistent with the ideals of the majority of Americans and not the kinds of policies mm-hmm. or postures that we want to hold up. Uh, I think, I think there's a case for that. Even in the case of the gavel here, like we're going to keep it and we don't, we don't want to erase its use, but in the name, you know, of statues and military bases, I, I, I don't, I think there's a, a pretty compelling argument to be honest. Yeah, we have this up on our Facebook page, particularly the article about President Trump saying he won't even consider renaming bases honoring Confederates. Uh, and I believe a Facebook friend of yours who follows our page, David Cook, let me just read what he wrote. Uh, he actually used a quote very cl- closely to what you just said. He said, mm-hmm. I'm no fan of the Confederacy, but I'm also not a fan of cleansing history. Use them as teaching points. Who was that guy, daddy? Then you tell them the whole truth. But I also understand what they stood for and what it can hurt and that it can hurt people. That should not be ignored. Lincoln wanted to blend the South back in and create one nation again. That sword could cut both ways. So <clears throat> he's bringing up that point that you did a little bit. Thanks to David for commenting on our on our Facebook page here, the Common Good Radio Show. Yeah. Uh, but he kind of made that same point that you did. But a little bit, uh, you went a little further with it going, hey, but we can teach in different ways. Because his point was uh, maybe leave the statues up and stuff so that we can teach through them. But you're saying there's a difference between teaching and honoring and venerating. Well, yeah, and it's not only a matter of like, oh, we can teach these things in other areas. We should be. We have, I think, we mm-hmm. have a responsibility to. Like for David to say, you can tell them the whole truth, but I also understand what they stood for and that it can hurt people. No, 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 not that it can hurt people. It has hurt people. And hurt isn't probably even strong enough a word. Like to to say that well, these symbols, well, sure, these symbols, they're pretty controversial um, to me isn't, is, isn't going far enough. 
And uh, I would be curious. Maybe this would be an interesting segment to actually have someone on the show yeah. who's really in favor of abolishing racism and thinks that those statues should be left up. That would be a really that would be a fascinating conversation. I think to to be able to hear both sides of this perspective from the same person. Yeah, and it, the hard part about this is that it's just. Um, you know, there's a lot of gray area on this. And I do think you want to let tend towards the people who have been hurt by it, <laughs> like, uh, and, and yeah, listen absolutely. to them. But, but, you know, in the history of our, of our even huge theology figures and huge political figures in a different time, uh, there was, you know, slavery and slave ownership. I think of Jonathan Edwards or, um, you know, some of the founding fathers, uh, of our nation. And I think we're going to have to really wrestle with that going forward. I think if people think there's a really easy answer to that, that's not the case. Uh, and I think that, that people need to listen and, and, and not just jump to, um, just jump right to opinion. No, you can't take that down. No, you can't do it. Well, let's have a conversation about this and, 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 and go down that road. I think it's a hard one. Even the NASCAR yesterday came out and said, I don't know if you saw this, but, yep. Uh, they're um, famous or notorious, however you want to look at it, for people bringing the Confederate flag to NASCAR events. Right. Uh, and they have one African-American driver. His name is Bubba Edwards. And he came out and said, I think this is wrong. And he asked them to, to do away with it. And NASCAR came out yesterday and banned the Confederate flag from all NASCAR events, which is going that might sound like not a big deal to most of us. But in the NASCAR world, a yeah. huge deal. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Well, Absolutely. David and others have already commented on this story at our Facebook page, but we would love to hear from you. You can do that at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by Noah Tolley. He is the professor of urban studies and politics at Wheaton College, as well as the director of Center for Urban Engagement. That's coming up next here on the Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. As always, you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, you can find us online, 1160hope.com, and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we are thrilled to be joined uh, for the next two segments by the Professor of Urban Studies and Politics and Inter International Relations, as well as the Director of the Center for Urban Engagement at Wheaton College, Dr. Noah Tolley. But he's better known as my sophomore year college roommate. Noah, why is that not on your bio sheet, uh, sheet here? <laughs> I'm adding that to my CV this year. <laughs> <laughs> I right, want that at the call. top. <laughs> I'll put uh, it up there. Yeah, so Noah and I did graduate from uh, Wheaton together. We both were in one another's weddings, so we go way back. But uh, Noah, besides being my old college roommate, why don't you introduce yourself however you see fit to our audience? Sure thing. Well, I've worked at Wheaton College since 2006, and I uh, serve as executive director of the Center for Urban Engagement. We have a few program areas, the Equitas Program in Urban Leadership, the Emerald South Scholars Initiative, uh, a budding partnership with a university in Southeast Asia, and most importantly, probably our Wheaton and Chicago program, which is on the south side of the city, mm. where we learn from and alongside uh, community partners there in Woodlawn and adjacent neighborhoods. And I chair the urban studies program here. Wow, awesome. that's remarkable. I, I understand you have a tweet that recently, ran, and I'm not sure what the qualifications anymore are for what qualifies as viral, but you have a tweet that went, <laughs> somewhat viral 
And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that tweet and the story surrounding it. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it went viral. I I hope there's nothing more viral in some ways than what happened. Um, and I honestly have to say, I hope I never tweet another viral tweet again, <laughs> unless it is again because a, a Holocaust survivor, in fact, an Auschwitz survivor, mm. um, meets me or I meet her at a rally for racial justice. Then I'd do it again. Wow. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be happy to tell you the story. Yeah, two weekends ago, uh, I actually went down to Chicago on Sunday afternoon to participate in some of the demonstrations there, but also to see some of the damage that had been done by rioting and looting the night before. Hmm. I actually teach on, uh, among other things, race riots and their history, especially in L.A., New York, and Chicago, and so uh, having taught that for 15 years, I really wanted to see up close what some of the dynamics uh, were that I could observe on Sunday afternoon. Hmm. They were limited. Things were quieter. Things were smaller. Um, There were definitely a lot of people just trying to make trouble. Um, And and by that, I mean, you know, I was accosted by a a group of three 20 some year old uh, white males who were just trying to scare me. That was interesting. (laughs) Um, and they were just trying to get their kicks out of things. I imagine that in some ways, a lot of the damage that has been done has been done by people just trying to get their kicks. Hmm. Um, the next weekend, we had a rally for racial justice here in Glen Ellen and Wheaton from Main Street Glen Ellen to Main Street Wheaton. And it was organized by someone I knew. Um, I wanted to be part of it. The whole family wanted to participate. And so we joined the rally. I was assigned as a corner coordinator, which really meant encouraging social distancing among the protesters at Washington and Roosevelt. Now, the the day, the hours passed, you know, we were there for about two hours or a little more. The hours passed. And as they passed, we met a lot of people in their cars because the light at Naperville and, and Roosevelt would turn red and back things up. So we chatted as people went by and almost everybody was supportive of the cause. They registered their support one way or another. And the protest was entirely peaceful. It was um, really a a great relationship in some ways. It showed a great relationship in some ways with the police who were there to support it and make sure that nothing got out of hand. Mm. We had uh, opportunities to wave at them and show support for them, too, as they went by. And at one point, a car pulled up in front of me and stopped because of the red light. Um, An elderly woman had her window down in the passenger seat and was nearest to me and waved me over. And I looked at her and I waved. And the driver of the car said something like, she wants you to come see this. Hmm. And so I walked over, um, just walked out into the street. My son, Joe, who is 17, joined me. He was on my left. A, a man that I don't know who was to my right also joined me. We were all at the window. And what the woman wanted me to see was the tattoo on her arm. And I knew in some ways right away hmm. what the tattoo was, what it meant, where it was from. Um, it was pretty clear to me that this was from a Nazi concentration camp. Wow. Um but you don't take those things for granted, right? Mm-hmm. The particularity of that horror 
right. is something that should never be taken for granted. Right. And the woman who wants her story told there or wants to tell her story shouldn't be taken for granted. She should be asked. So I, I asked her, uh, where did you get that? And she said, Auschwitz, Auschwitz. Wow. And I said, thank you for sharing that with us. Would you mind if I take a photo? And she said, yes, yes. And I, the driver said, the driver made it very clear too, saying she wants you to, uh, that I, I should take a photo. So I took a few photos, just three really quick as the light turned green. And I moments later posted it to Twitter, Instagram, which also put it on Facebook automatically, uh, where I have very modest followings. <laughs> and uh, really the first people to interact with it were colleagues and friends who were also at the rally for racial justice. Um, people saying, I, I wondered why you were out there in the street talking mm -hmm. to somebody in a car, or I saw her drive by too, mm -hmm. waving at people and seeming to want to support what we were out to support. Um, then it went viral. And I noticed that about an hour later, as my phone would not stop buzzing while I was in a meeting, um, it, I didn't look at it. But afterward, Twitter said, do you want to turn off notifications? <laughs> I said, no, thanks. Uh, that's the that's a thing I regret. Um, my phone buzzed every time anybody engaged with this post. <laughs> and I think my battery is fried forever. Um, <laughs> there there are something like thirty five million, almost thirty five million in, in, impressions or views. Wow. About 10 million engagements. Wow. Almost 800,000 um, likes, 200 and some thousand um, retweets. And I think a lot of good came of that. And also there was a lot of exposure to some real ugliness too. Mm. Yeah. No, with like the two minutes or so on this segment. I'm curious, why do you think it went viral? It's an unbelievable story, but it has caught traction. I'm sure that has surprised you. Why do you think people are so uh, interested in just that picture? I think it, it tells an interesting story of a survivor of horrific brutality hmm. who came out against a lot of odds um, when I'm 97, I hope to be as um, engaged as <laughs> Joyce Wagner is. Um, came out against a lot of odds, came out during the pandemic uh, to be part of a show of support for others who have experienced the horrors of brutality. I, I think that's one of the reasons. The other reason just has to do with how polarized our society is right now. Yeah. And so the impressions of the tweet were a bit like a Rorschach test. The ways that people were engaging with it, um, most people were admiring and respectful. And I think mm. that's important to say. The yeah. vast majority right. were admiring and respectful. There were then other people enlisting her for anachronistic causes, um, you know, saying that she's the uh, uh, OG Antifa or the queen of Antifa <laughs> or something like that. Um, I don't think that's what she came out to say. Mm -hmm. Um, that's part, I, I didn't take any liberties in, in glossing what she said to me. And I don't think we should take those kinds of liberties with her story either. Mm. Um, though it's fair to say she was out to support racial justice. 
Um, there were also people who were doing worse, trolling, yeah. denying the Holocaust, right. um, posting anti-Semitic and terribly racist things. Wow. And that that's why, in some ways, unless the occasion is exactly the same, I really hope I never post another viral tweet again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that voice you hear is no, uh, Dr. Noah Tolley, a professor of urban studies and politics, director of the Center for Urban Engagement at Wheaton College. Uh, Noah's kind enough uh, to stay with us for another segment here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and uh, we are thrilled to continue to be joined by Dr. Noah Tolley. Noah is the director of the Center for Urban Engagement, amongst other things, over at Wheaton College. Uh, and in the first segment he was with us, shared just a fascinating story that has gone viral on Twitter and Facebook uh, that I'd encourage you to go back and listen to on our podcast if you didn't hear that. But Noah, thanks for continuing to join us. And uh, here's my question for you. You shared in the first segment that you even went downtown because at Wheaton you teach classes like race riot, riots uh, in the past, the history of, and stuff like that. I'm curious for you personally, seeing all that's going on culturally in our, in our city, in our nation, uh, how will this change you as a teacher? And what effect will this have on like the Center for Urban Engagement and Wheaton in Chicago for the school? That's a great question, Brian. Um, I'm glad you asked it. Before I go on from that, I just want to do one thing that follows up on what we talked about in the first segment, if that's all right. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that is that I really want this, what happened on Saturday, to be Joyce Wagner's story and not mine yeah. as much as yeah. possible. Yeah. And so I want to be sure that people know uh, that she's written a book called A Promise oh, wow. Kept to Bear Witness. Hmm. My copy arrived today from Amazon, and after the after what happened on Twitter, uh, she actually ended up with this book rated or ranked eighth of all the history books on Amazon, which wow. is good. <laughs> my my awesome. personal goal is something like to see her book ranked one. I love it. Um, and I'd love for people to order it and read it. It will be a heavy read, no doubt. Um, and then the other thing is that she actually has a an interview archived with the U.S. Holocaust Museum. Hmm. That you can find if you go search it there. So I, I would point people in that direction if I could. That's for great. sure. For sure. Um, so you asked about how this how this might change me, uh, what yep. this might mean. And and also our programs at the college, our engagement in the city. Is that right? Yep, absolutely. Well, I think one of the things that is brought to the forefront by the injustices we've witnessed over these past several weeks and that we continue to witness the uh, sort of language of protest, of riot, the solidarity that people see in the streets and elsewhere, the churches and institutions that are speaking out. I think in the midst of all that, we have an opportunity to lament, to mourn, to grieve. You know, we may be tempted to move on too quickly to now let's solve this problem. And we do need to solve it. But those of us who are in especially predominantly white or, or dominant culture institutions really need to make sure that we've taken the opportunity to grieve alongside. Yeah. Right. 
to mourn alongside and not to move on without feeling that weight. Yeah. And yet to move on because we do need action. Mm. And I hope that what this will inspire in our programming uh, in the Center for Urban Engagement and Urban Studies and even at the college at large yeah. is some willingness to hear the voices of communities who have felt the crushing weight mm. of racial injustice for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's good. Now I'm, I'm on your Twitter right now, actually. And I gotta be honest, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really, and I realize there's a lot of confirmation bias there at play. I want to, I want to own that, but like the stuff that you're saying and sharing, and I know that you're an educator and not just an educator in some nebulous sense, but around a lot of the issues and conversations that Brian and I have been having on the show. I know we just have a few minutes together now, but I'm wondering what voices or publications or podcasts or books would you point people to if they're hearing your voice and they're thinking, I've never considered this, or you're shedding new light on this. Like, are there places that you would point people that want to take a deeper dive once our interview here is done? Absolutely. Um, there was a terrific article that was just published, I think, yesterday in Christianity Today by my colleague Esau McCauley here mm -hmm. in New Testament. A black New Testament scholar uh, wrote a wonderful piece on why his hope for miraculous things, frankly, mm -hmm. things that we have come not to expect but still to hope for Yes, is grounded ultimately in the God who raises the dead. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I think that returning to that theme and teasing out over and over how our ultimate hope is in the gospel, yes, but what does it mean? What does the gospel mean for this sort of proximate hope? Right, right. What does the gospel mean for when I wake up tomorrow for what I do with and for and alongside my neighbors, how do I learn from them and walk behind them? Not even, not even alongside them, hmm. but behind them at first to learn with the knowledge that what's helpful isn't my walking with them, but it's what's sorry. What's hopeful isn't my walking with them, but it's what God is doing in the world. That's right. Hmm. Um, I would also recommend a number of, of other resources. There's a wonderful book for the church coming out soon by Erwin Ince. Uh, I think it's called The Beautiful Community. He was on NPR this morning uh, being interviewed about his book, and it'll come out in August. And it is about um, multicultural churches and worshiping communities and also uh, racial justice and reconciliation. But I'd also really highly recommend that we, as Christians, we listen to people who are writing from the church and for the church, but we also get outside that box. Yes. Yes. I think sometimes we need to be reading um, people like James Baldwin, mm -hmm. uh, who in the middle of the 20th century had a lot of important things to say about race that seem relevant today mm -hmm. uh, in ways that he would certainly have hoped they would not have been. Yeah, right. Um, or even fiction. One of my favorite authors right now is Jesmyn Ward, um, an African-American novelist and memoirist. And I'd highly recommend her books. Um, Salvage the Bones is my favorite novel of hers. Hmm. Uh, but Men We Reaped is a memoir about five family members and close friends of hers that died. Hmm. 
Mm. And I, I would mm. highly recommend that we read and sit with some of those things. That's great. Thank you for that. That's really good. Uh, no, I'm curious. Uh, something Ian and I have really enjoyed the last two or three weeks is we've had as many pastors from the city as possible that we could talk to. And, and we ask each of them, are they hopeful? And uh, you're in a different spot, right? You're engaging with the city, but, uh, you know, you're a white professor out in the suburbs. But I guess you are really engaged. I'm curious, are you hopeful? And as you talk to men and women in the city, your contacts, do you sense hopefulness from them as well? Yeah, I do sense hopefulness. Um, I sense a perhaps hesitant hopefulness. Mm. Um, and I, I I shouldn't attribute that to everyone. This is this is uh, mm-hmm. hesitant hopefulness is something that comes to mind as I actually think about particular emails or phone calls I've had. Mm. Um, you know, for example, a community partner of ours letting us know how their neighborhood was doing. Um they they were hopeful and yet hesitant enough and justifiably hesitant enough to ask us what are we willing to do now hmm. alongside them with them learning from them hmm. standing with them and i think they have good reason to believe that we want that yeah i'm i still think they want to see us do it yeah right right and yeah. I am hopeful that institutions like Wheaton College, institutions like the Center for Urban Engagement, like our Urban Studies Department, will commit to that more yeah. and more in the future. Absolutely. Well, Noah, I'm really uh, thrilled that you joined us today again. Let me give the particulars who Noah is. He is the Professor of Urban Studies and Politics and International Relations, as well as the Director of the Center for Urban Engagement at Wheaton College. Uh, again, if you weren't with us in the first segment, I said what needs to go in his bio was he was my sophomore year roommate. So uh, it's good to see an old friend and an old roommate doing good work, man. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll catch up soon. Yeah, Thanks, thanks Brian and Ian. Good to be with you both. Bye. And I'll be sure to put that roommate piece on my CV right now. <laughs> oh, very much appreciated. Even though I know you won't, it still makes me feel good. So anyway, thanks Talk for joining you. us. Bud. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us again on this Thursday afternoon. We're excited to have on the phone with us right now, Pastor Ernie Sanders. Pastor Ernie Sanders is uh, has a show called What's Right, What's Left that will be playing weekdays from 9 until 11 uh, p.m. starting Monday, uh, June the 15th. Pastor Sanders, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be here in Chicago. We're excited to have you. Could you just introduce yourself to our audience in any way that you see fit? All righty. Well, we're known as the voice. I'm known, I should say, as the voice of the Christian resistance uh, nationwide. I've been doing radio for 48 years. We are an extremely activist uh, ministry here. What's right, what's left, that comes right from Matthew chapter 25 in the Bible, where it says, those on the right will inherit the kingdom. Those on the left will be bound and cast into the fire. And so, as you know, today, if you believe in God, country, and righteousness, then you're called right wing. But if you if you embrace everything that God's word in the Bible calls sin, you're called, you're on the left. So, anyhow, that's that's where 
uh, what's why we where the name came from. But uh, I did radio as a very young man. I was doing radio for about the first seven or eight years on a program called Biblical Answers to Secular Questions as a co-host with a real statesman, Seth Galbraith, uh, who's going to be with the Lord long ago. But uh, out of necessity, we started What's Right, What's Left, because in Northeast Ohio, Christians were, were really suffering at the hands of uh, corrupted officials. We were very active in the pro-life movement. Uh, in our ministry, uh, since 1974, we've saved over 24,000 babies. Uh, we have uh, people on the streets, you know, weekend and wake out, you know, every summer, winter, fall, and, and spring. And so because of that, uh, especially in the Cleveland area and Youngstown, we had Anne Akron, we had uh, corrupt police that would, would take money and that they would uh, harass our people and in many cases pretty violent with some of our people. Well, uh, I, I had enough of that. We went after them, went after them big time, and we cleaned that mess up. And so, uh, I mean, they, they actually had the audacity once when I was assaulted, I called the police thinking I might get a little help. Instead, they came out, they went into the abortionist's office, and they actually had the audacity to walk out carrying an envelope with cash sticking out. And what happened in that situation, I said, all right, that's enough. You guys don't make enough money. You got to take bribes. And they laughed. They said, Pastor, when they don't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it. They thought it was funny. I said, don't worry, fellas. I understand. I'm going to help you. So I got the names and badge numbers, and I went on the radio. And I told, you know, I, nationwide, I cast it out there. These fellas need help. They don't make enough money as cops to feed their families. So if you need security, let's say you have dog fights, cock fights, or maybe child porn flicks, and you need police officers with absolutely <laughs> No morals or values do anything for a buck. I gave their name and phone number out over the air, and I end the fourth precinct. Well, you know what? That caused quite a commotion there and literally put a contract on me there in Cleveland. But the good cops, the clean cops, they came to my aid, and they said, we have been. We want to thank you for doing what you did and exposing, because they're giving us all a bad name. But we cleaned it up. They quit. They quit picking on our people. They quit harassing our people because when they did, we fought back. And we're out there. God's where the Bible says to rescue those being led to slaughter and drawn to death. And that's exactly what we did. So that's a little bit of the history of this program. And Pastor, I'm thinking about the, the title of your show. And I'm wondering, what would you say to the listener that both identifies as left-leaning and a Christ follower, someone who says, I tend to vote Democratic or liberal, but I also consider myself a, a Bible-believing follower. Well, I would ask them a question. The Bible says, what fellowship did Christ have with Belial, right? So what fellowship does Christ have with sin? Uh, if you say you're left-leaning uh, and you're a Democrat, that means you've got a party that embraces abortion, embraces sodomy, embraces uh, bestiality. All of these things, God's Word, the Bible calls an abomination, so... How can you, the Bible says that, that light can have no fellowship, none, zip, uh, with, with darkness. And so that's how I'd answer. You've been listening to Pastor Ernie Sanders. He is the host of a show that is going to be starting up on 1160 here, WYLL, host of What's Right, What's Left, weekdays 
from 9 until 11 p.m. starting on Monday, uh, June the 15th. Pastor Sanders, we're really grateful for your time. Hope the show goes well here in Chicago. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, guys. And someday maybe you guys join me on my program. We'd love to. That would be a good time. Uh, yeah, right. you let us know. I hope all goes well. Thanks. Thanks. God bless. Thank you again. Bye-bye. You too. You too. That was Pastor Ernie Sanders. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to continue talking about George Floyd and how the church is to react. And then we're going to talk about an interesting story out of Alabama. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Remember the particulars. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can find us online, 1160hope.com, and our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review. If you want to go back and hear uh, many of the good interviews we've done through the course of the week, if you want to hear uh, Professor Dr. Noah Tolley that we just did or Pastor Sanders, you can go ahead and find them at our podcast. Well, uh, Ian, at Christianity Today, uh, Esau McCauley, wrote an article entitled, I Have Only One Hope for Racial Justice, A God Who Conquered Death. What's going on here? Yeah, so Esau, by the way, if you're not following him on social media, so good. please yeah. please go do it. Just incredibly well-read, incredible writer, just a great, I think we did, uh, did we read a sermon he did on Pentecost Sunday a couple weeks ago? Yes, just we did. A, There's something about, I don't know, his voice right now in this cultural moment is is something I've really, really appreciated. So let me just read how he begins it. He says, the entire globe is convulsing with social justice, unrest and protest. Almost every day I wake up to an endless stream of news that tempts me to despair. I look at the persistent racism and systemic oppression that mars our society and I see no hope that things will change. I see political leaders failing to unify and not divide the country and I must try and the system falters I look at a church that is so often views everything through the lens of a particular political party and not the gospel. And I feel a downcast, which, by the way, I feel like probably a lot of people can commiserate. That's right. He says, I take some small comfort in knowing that white Christians are stepping up to participate in public protests, analyze their organizations and make room for change. But nonetheless, I'm still left with questions. Are black Christians seeing a momentary spike in sympathy or is something deeper at work? Is a significant segment of the white evangelical church ready to join the fight for justice? Or will the coming weeks and months see a return to the status quo? Mm-hmm. What will happen when there isn't a steady stream of videos showcasing the undeniable face of black suffering? And I'll stop there because we did a, an article probably two or three days ago about the it was really pleading with white Americans to not disengage and I found that article really convicting. And That's it's right. it's been interesting even talking with certain leaders from Chicagoland who sort of said, yeah, we, we've been fighting this fight for a while. And we really do hope that the greater church doesn't disengage. But there's a certain level. I don't know. But did you sense like a realism in their voice? Like, yeah, but we do expect that it's going to eventually drop off here in a couple of weeks. And that it's hard to not be discouraged by that. Yeah, I certainly have heard in, in a lot of the interviews we've done. Uh, a hope that it won't completely drop off. I right, think there right. was an understanding it's going to drop off. 
Right. Uh, but a hope that maybe this time there'll be some legs to it. But I certainly think that's the question, uh, especially uh, for the uh, for the white church right now is, are you going to continue staying in this right now? Or is this kind of uh, the thing going on right now? And then we'll move on to something else and leave it all uh, leave it all for our, our brothers and sisters, our African-American brothers and sisters in the church to deal with. And he goes on and says, there's an even more urgent question than whether white evangelicals participate in this movement. Our ultimate aim is not to secure allies. It is it is to secure freedom. That is such a good line, by the way. With that in mind, can we really hope to slay or at least deeply wound the monster of racism that is so deeply embedded in American culture? Which Again, that word embedded is so important. Somebody else. And again, you know, say what you will about memes. There's there is a certain portability to memes that in some ways can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Someone was saying something like racism is so deeply embedded in American culture that when you protest racism, people feel like you're protesting America. Like I there is a, yeah. a certain embeddedness that I'm learning more and more is actually true. And that my brothers and sisters of color have been probably saying for a, a lot longer than I realize. So that's part of what Esau is getting after here is like, man, will we, will we at least in this moment, make a mortal wound, even though we know people will eventually run out of steam and drop off or they'll find some other cause or issue. And I, I don't know. I, th- I think that his pastoral wisdom in the rest of this article is really good. It is. Cause then he's going to go on and ask uh, a question uh, that is, that is really uh, at the heart of this for many people. Where does my hope come from? He writes, right. Where does my hope come from? Right. Not from the usual places, not from the fact that we've added more faces to our marches. My trust goes much deeper. He says, to the resurrection and the way in which it reconfigures our spiritual imagination. God has a long Mm. history of giving his people a belief in the seemingly impossible. Like what a line that is right there. God has a long history of giving his people a belief in the seemingly impossible. Scripture reminds me of this story. Uh, He says, he goes on to tell many of the stories throughout scripture. And he says, Jesus, in both of the responses, he talks about higher Jesus points to the resurrection. He knows that what uh, what his people need is not some small signal of God's presence that can be dismissed as a coincidence. What Mm. we need is a sign of his victory. The feeding of the 5,000 or the walking on water is great. But if it can all be unraveled by death, then what is the point? If the Mm. Roman Empire has the ability to stop Jesus, then what is to keep the current empires from stopping us? We need hope big enough to overcome death itself. The resurrection, then, is not a mere sign. It Mm. is a hermeneutical key that unlocks the mystery of God's purposes. It is the power that overcomes principalities. And he says, as I survey the history of race relations in America, I see this truth in play. Man, that preaches. And and not just preaches. There's so much hope and truth in that, that he's anchoring it, um, you know, as a as an African-American pastor and faith leader here, who's really wrestling with all that's going on, he's going, when I look to the resurrection, that's where I find my hope. I don't find my hope in the bigger rallies or the Facebook posts of people that I didn't expect it from or whatever else, all of which are good. Yeah. Uh, but in the, in the ultimate victory in the hope that comes when you look to the resurrection, that is really great pastoral. Um, I almost said wisdom. That almost sounds too small. Just, uh, it's just great pastoral truth right there. Yeah, let me let me read a little a little more of what he wrote. He said, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that God is our genie and then we can rush into any arena, assuming that right. he'll rescue us from any folly or grant every request. It doesn't mean that Christians can never feel discouragement. Here's what it means. Our limited imaginations do not form the boundaries of what God can do. That's so mm. good. 
Humans have limited power. We can maim and kill or be killed. We can make promises of social unity that we often lack the power to actualize. But a God who has defeated death and called to himself a people who understand the full scope of his victory is unstoppable. And then later he says, I must confess that much of my life has been spent doubting the resurrection. I don't question whether it occurred. I'm convinced that the tomb remains empty, but I do often wonder whether the world is truly a different place. Things seem to go on as they always have. The rich exploit the poor. Evil triumphs over good. Going low appears to be much more profitable than going high. Racism sweeps our land, and the weakest among us suffer the most. Which, if you feel that way today, you're in good company. Because I've, I've most certainly felt the same thing. I think he articulates that so well. It's not that, it's not that I don't actually think Jesus rose from the dead. But sometimes it is hard if you're looking with eyes wide open to see that it actually made a difference. And I, I think, again, these are just excerpts. Go and read the entire article. Yes. It's phenomenal. Yeah, and as we like to do, let me just read his ending because it's often what just brings it home. He says, the defeat of death is God's great triumph. It reshapes the Christian imagination, forever obliterating the limits we place upon our creator. As the protests press on then, I pray today and every day that we remember the resurrection when the entire cosmos became something different. Hmm. We have yet to realize the full scope of that change. That is just, I find that really helpful, man, because, you know, we've done a lot of uh, articles and a lot of having conversations. What's next? What keeps this going? What goes, and this is, you know, he, he is a priest. He's uh, Esau is a priest in the Anglican church. He's also an assistant professor of new Testament at Wheaton college. Uh, and he says, you know what, for me, ultimately, ultimate hope uh, is in being reminded of Christ's victory at the resurrection and that that defeats all of the evil strongholds of this world, even though we still see it happening at times, uh, and that that's ultimately where he finds hope. I found this to be a really, really powerful article. Go to our Facebook page. Uh, we'd encourage you to read it there. Our Facebook page is The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, that's The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, uh, we're going to discuss a story out of Alabama, specifically at one of the biggest churches in Alabama, uh, the Church of the Highlands, and something that happened with Pastor Chris Hodges there. We're going to do that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are grateful for you joining us today. Uh, if you missed our interview with Noah Tolley in the first hour, I'd highly encourage you to go back to our podcast and listen to that. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, I know that we're a little biased, but just all the interviews we've been able to do this week with various pastors and ministry leaders uh, from in and around the Chicagoland area, uh, I can't, uh, I can't uh, ask you enough to go listen to those because they were all phenomenal. Uh, yeah, not most, because of us, them, but because of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, most of them. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> I'm, I'm being cheery, I guess. Uh, I told someone the other day, I said, you can skip our words, but go listen to the uh, interviews that we we're able to do this week. So uh, <laughs> you can find those on, on our podcast, also online at 1160hope.com. Well, an interesting story out of Birmingham, Alabama. But before we tackle that story, Ian, why don't you tell us some more about our friends at Thrivent? I'd love to. So Thrivent.com is where you need to head right now. I've been a Thrivent member for like eight years. They're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit, been around for more than a century, which says something. But it's also a lot of times it's hard to find Christian organizations that also are 
wise with money. And they just, in my opinion, are like a really great blend of both. Also, though, if you're looking for a career change, Thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to peruse, even if you're considering it, which I know a ton of people are right now. You don't even have to have a background in finance. Plus, one of the things, this is just like a taste, one of the things I appreciate so much about them is they're always kind of sending out helpful content for people that are either homeschooling for the first time or they're trying to lead through a crisis. In fact, next week, uh, my buddy Matthew Paul Turner is going to be reading from his children's book. It's sort of like a gift and resource to parents with young kids. So we've shared all that on our Facebook page. Definitely check that out. Check out their page. And uh, I think you'll be really glad that you did. Great. We, we are appreciative of Thrivent. And it's always good to have organizations that you uh, believe in <laughs> that you can talk about. And so Thrivent is one of those. Uh, Pastor Chris Hodges, uh, he is at the Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, a huge church down there uh, that has done a lot of stuff in the community. And an interesting story has come out over the last week or two that involves him. So let me just, as best I can, piece together the story. Uh, and then, Ian, there's like four different ways you can take it. So I'm going to let you choose which way to take it. Um, but let me tell the story. Pastor Chris Hodges, uh, he uh, got himself in some hot water because of various tweets that he liked. So not tweets that he wrote, but tweets that he liked, particularly by a, um, uh, many people call me far right uh, guy by the name of Charlie Kirk. So uh, one of them had a picture of Donald Trump uh, calling him not racist while calling Joe Biden racist. There was some other stuff about looters. Uh, and this created an uproar uh, in and amongst Alabama, uh, Birmingham area, including within his church. Now, Hodges wrote on June 2nd a for- an apology to his church. He said, uh, I realize that I have hurt people that I love deeply because I liked multiple insensitive social media posts. Each one was a mistake. I own it. I'm sorry. I've learned so much in the past few days about racial disparities in America. I wish I could sit down and have a conversation with everyone impacted uh, or hurt by my actions. Uh, and he goes on to talk about kind of the reflection and the people he's talked. He just this past week, I believe, preached a sermon um, reflecting on what he's learned and um, about all that's been going on around uh, beginning with the murder of George Floyd and everything else. And also inserting some of what he's learned from his own mistakes here. Uh, but yesterday it came out that the Birmingham schools and the housing authorities cut ties with the Church of the Highlands. Uh, so the story goes like this. The Birmingham Board of Education voted Tuesday night to end its leases with the Church of the Highlands after a controversy over social media activity by Pastor Chris Hodges. The church paid an average of $12,000 a month each uh, a month each to rent Parker High School and Woodlawn High School, a total of $288,000 per year. Uh, services have been held at this one school since 2012 and another since 2018. Uh, Hodges and Christ Health Clinic CEO responded today to the Birmingham Housing Authority banning the church and clinic because of the controversy over Hodges liking posts by Turning Point USA. Uh, it goes on to talk about uh, just kind of him being sorry, but the, the the effect that this has had. And at the end, It says, after the vote by the Birmingham Board of Education, the church sent a letter to the Board of Education that said, we are grateful for the opportunity to love and serve our community together over the years. Going forward, we will continue our financial support of the school system 
and encourage others to do the same. So they're trying to kind of de-escalate and still be a support. So a very, what I found just a, a, an interesting story with a lot of different tentacles to it. Uh, so I'm wondering, Ian, from that story, kind of what are your thoughts? What stood out to you there? Well, what stands out to me first is your use of tentacles this week. I feel like... Is that more than once? Have I done that? Oh, is that becoming a crutch? I, yeah, I, 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 I didn't know if you were like really into aquatics lately or... <laughs> Oh. There is something like some National Geographic that you've been watching and yeah. that's sort of at the forefront of your mind. I, was, I wasn't sure. For now, I'm going to put in front of the wall in front of me, I'm going to write tentacles with a circle and a line <laughs> through it just to remind myself. Just, oh, every time I just like, I picture an octopus, I'm like, okay, we're not, that's oh, not what we're talking about. Stay focused, Ian. That, uh, yeah, that's the last time you've heard it from me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I like it. It's um, like what you said. It's a complicated story. My first gut response is this guy should know better. You're yeah. pastor of a big church. And I feel like you gave the caveat, like, hey, he didn't write it. He just liked it. Um, that's I didn't mean a- that caveat. Actually, I, did, I don't mean that to be the caveat. That is probably how it sounded. But I actually okay. think the way everybody can see what you like, to right. like something is the same as writing it in my book. Uh, it's it's close. close. Yeah. Sure. And, I, and I think, I mean, maybe I really doubt that he was unaware that people could see it. But if he... If he was aware and he thought that this wouldn't be problematic, that's another issue. So there is, on one hand, you think, okay, well, maybe this exposed some stuff that, like, his church and city needs to know about what he actually believes. On the other hand, you know, I've been tweeting out some stuff the last couple of weeks saying we we should celebrate when people change their mind when presented with new information, which, you know, on the surface, it sounds like he might fit in that category. But then on the other end, I don't, I don't know how many ends there are to this, this <laughs> Um I don't like that I'm this skeptical, but I feel like I've seen far too many people with a platform like all of a sudden pull a 180 when there's consequences rather than, you know what I mean? Like, and I don't know how else yep. to gauge that because I don't know the guy and we don't live there and I don't know his church and I don't know the city board. But there is certainly at least a, a little bit of skepticism in my mind when I see these, you know, public apologies. And I think, would you actually be apologizing if you didn't actually get in trouble? Right. But I want to be hopeful. I want to I want to hope that like this thing, this debacle for him unearthed some stuff that made him realize like, yeah, maybe I maybe I shouldn't be believing this. But it sounds like his apology had more to do with I'm sorry, I hurt people, which doesn't necessarily mean that he's in any way no. interested in dismantling some of the stuff that he believes or was liking or has been holding to, which, again, is his prerogative. Right. There are plenty of pastors in this country and globally that you and I don't agree with. You and I don't even agree on everything. You know, we're pastors in the same general area. Yeah, so, You know, again, that's his prerogative. But if those beliefs, though, are to the detriment of dignity for people or dehumanizing anyway, that to me veers into a deeper category than just eh, agree to disagree. Like that turns the heat up in my mind a little bit, especially for a man of faith, especially someone who leads a large organization. Um, but it does feel, again, like some cancel culture that's at play. Yeah. which you and I have tackled a couple of times on this show, which is really messy and tricky to navigate because I think there are probably a lot of people who've been canceled that you and I would say, I don't know that that person needs to be canceled. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I don't all that to say it's a long winded way of saying I have no idea. Yeah, no, I think you did it well. Uh, I have no idea. A lot of tentacles to the story. Yeah, right. So uh, what I would say, what I would close it is this. I think uh, his track record is having done a lot of really amazing things through the church, right? They, the free clinic and all this stuff, but social media sometimes can, my guess is he's probably been surprised by like, or if I were in his shoes being like, Oh man, like even with all the good that I've done, I'm using air quotes. There's still something in my soul that caused me to like this. 
Like, mm. and so my hope is like a wake up call going, man, even though I have this track record of doing all this good stuff and, and, and helping in the city and all this stuff, why would I have liked these? Why did this come out of me? And I think mm. I would hope that it's, I get what you said. There could be a very easy skepticism of like, Oh, you got caught. I would like to hope that it's going, man, this isn't my track record, but why did I like these? It kind of a look in the mirror, kind of a come to Jesus moment uh, that I think a lot of us need to have, you know, you know, uh, just because we've done X, Y, and Z, uh, what is still in our soul? I think what is still there that we, you know, that we agree with or we don't agree with. And uh, I, I hope that some really good comes out of it. But yeah. yeah, really complicated story. I do. My favorite part of the story, favorite, that's a weird way to put it. I do like that the church said, even though the schools aren't letting us meet, we're still going to pay them. We're still going to support mm. them and be a part of that. I think that's a, that's an impressive uh, step taken by the church. But uh, I'm hoping that that he comes out of this a better person, because like I said, the church does great things, but obviously some things in his soul that he probably needs to wrestle with like we all do. Uh, well, coming up next, a story from the Gospel Coalition or a blog from the Gospel Coalition asking about a quiet life in a world of distress. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, you can continue the conversation on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles we also post the interviews that we've done on each show. You can comment, continue the conversation with other listeners. We'd encourage you uh, to go over to the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You can also do that on Twitter uh, and on Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can go online to 1160hope.com, and there you can find uh, our old shows and also the podcast. Uh, get to our podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review. That does help us. And uh, yeah, go ahead and pass it on to a friend. Be like, hey, go ahead and listen to this podcast. And uh, again, is that, is that how you talk to people? <laughs> I be, you know, hey, why don't you just, I don't know, listen you, to this podcast. <laughs> you say it like a creepy guy selling drugs down an alley. Like, Psst, hey, 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 I got want, a podcast for you. You want, you want a podcast to hear? I'm like, no. All right, I'd say it more. Hey, listen to this podcast. You, you over there, this podcast. <laughs> These are all methods I would not suggest. <laughs> Ask nicely to have people uh, join the podcast, and we are grateful for those of you. We do know that many of you don't listen live, but you instead listen through the course of your week, and we are grateful for those of you mm -hmm. uh, who do that. Well, over at the Gospel Coalition, uh, Trevin Wax wrote a blog called A Quiet Life in a World of Unrest. I thought this would, before we get into the craziness of interweb insanity, I thought this would be a, a uh, an interesting way to end the show. Uh, just kind of asking, what does a quiet life even look like? Yeah. In such a world of unrest. So what does he say here in his blog? Here's how he starts. He says, one of the striking aspects of Paul's letters to early churches, as I've written before, is his choice of familial language to address his readers and the familiar images he turned to in order to explain what the Christian life of love, generosity, and compassion is to look like. Within the church, we are to love each other like family. But mm -hmm. Paul is also concerned with how we look to the outside world. Note what he says in First Thessalonians 4. He says, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to do your work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Paul is still talking about brotherly love, but now he's showing us what this love looks like outside the church. In the midst of our tumultuous times, 
Paul gives us instruction on how we are to act toward those around us to seize the opportunity to shine God's light to the world, which again is something that I feel like a lot of the Christian audience is probably interested in doing. And I think most Christians are mm, predominantly well-meaning. I can't say all, and I certainly can't say all the time, but I do think what sometimes other people read maybe as like, oh, going too far or saying too much. I do think the vast majority of the time at the core, it's like an attempt to do exactly that, to shine like the light and love of God to the world. And sometimes, you know, myself included, we kind of trip on our own feet and ends up coming out sideways. But I, I like I like that premise there, although it does almost feel impossible, the idea yeah. of living a quiet life in such a noisy time. It's so true. And the picture of showing brotherly love, it does. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. It feels impossible. So he does go on to say, uh, because one of the hard parts about talking even about a quiet life uh, and even when I first saw this article, I was like, is this is what, is this what he's going to say? You start to think like, this is a time where we've been telling people don't be quiet, right? right? Like, like now's the time to speak up, but thankfully that's not what he's talking about. So, uh, he goes on to say, Paul says, do this even more, meaning be generous with other believers and continue to share God's love with others outside the church, not just within the church, G- give, share love with all people. The love you have for your church family have also for those around you. In the world, Paul states the purpose of these commands to behave properly in the presence of outsiders and to not depend on anyone. In other words, to shine our light before others, not being a drain to others that they will see our good deeds and give glory to God. And then later on, he says, then Paul says we should, quote, seek to lead a quiet life. And here's where he gets at it. Hmm. What does that mean? Does it mean we never speak up against injustice? Does it mean we never raise our voices? Does it mean we never join protests? Does it mean we never resist or defy unjust orders? The thundering of the prophets throughout the Old Testament sounds anything but quiet. But even in all their boldness and truth telling, the prophets are settled. And when Paul speaks here of a quiet life, he is not advocating quietism, the view that Christians should would never speak truth to power or exercise their civic responsibility. He's referring to a rootedness, a quietness that does not seek the spotlight or succumb to fruitless anxiety, but works hard at resting in the sovereign goodness of God. I'll pause there. That's a really great distinction. I thought that it was really helpful. I don't I don't think I agree that all, of the, all of the prophets were settled. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Have you? Well, what do you mean that's true? Before I respond, what do you mean that's true? There, there seem to be a. Uh, uh, in some of the prophets, like you said, an, an angstiness to them. Uh, I didn't say that. Okay. What were you going to say? <laughs> what were you going to say? I think you, I mean, you read some of the prophets of the Old Testament. They seem borderline unhinged. Actually, <laughs> I like to call it angstiness. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, it's um, maybe a, like a real confidence with the message God had given them, a real decisiveness about what they needed to do, but they, in a lot of ways seem very unsettled actually that's why prophets were often i think killed or cast out because they were that you know what the culture saw as like a minor inconvenience the prophets often saw as a great tragedy and they would cry out and they would issue warnings and judgments and i mean again I, yeah i don't i don't know that with a lot of particularly in the old testament a lot of those prophets i would uh quickly identify as settled now certainly some of them and you have to make the distinction between like wilderness prophets and temple prophets. I think there were two totally different callings and two very different wirings, but there's a lot of unsettledness, I think, in uh, in prophetic writing. 
So how about this concept of rootedness that he talks about, the need to be rooted uh, and that that kind of is a stability when things are crazy. I think that's what he's getting at with quiet for us here is to be rooted in um, in Christ and then speak out and be loud where, where it calls to be loud. Uh, call out injustice where you need to call out injustice. Uh, what do you think of this concept of rootedness? And then maybe pastorally, how would you encourage someone to even move in the uh, in the direction of being rooted. Yeah, the, I, I, I think the word rootedness is a good one. I, I think that probably looks different for different people. You know, when you, when you think of like the analogy of a tree, some people are like all roots, no branches, you know? So mm. like there's a deep love and affinity for study and theology and, and doctrine, um, but no real interest in any way like conveying that to the world at large or bringing the gospel into their neighborhoods and communities. Conversely, there are probably a lot of people, though, that are like, they are all gung-ho. Activism kind of is in their blood. They want to, like, reach people. They want to bring justice, but they are they don't have a lot of rootedness, maybe, yeah. Yeah. both theologically or relationally. And I think we need each other. You know, the trunk in the middle is sort of like, and so maybe, maybe, you know, that's the body of Christ. That's how we kind of keep, we need both. A tree with all branches and no roots eventually topples over. But a tree all roots with no branches doesn't bear any fruit, you know? So I think mm, yeah. I think I think the church as a whole needs all of us. And I think that's why it's so important. We sometimes I think create categories where we we try to articulate the perfect super Christian. Mm. And instead, I think part of the reason Paul often uses the analogy of the body is like, no, no, no. We're no individual person is gonna have all seventeen of these perfectly wonderful traits. But yeah. together as the body of Christ and submission to one another, like we can live and manifest this out into our world. And I think that's I, I think I think that's really important. Yeah, I like this paragraph near the end. He says, how do we avoid the danger of quietism that would lead us to silence when we are called to speak? But how do we also avoid the danger of an activism that would sweep us into the maelstrom 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 of current events and political fervor? Both dangers mute our witness. Both dangers drown out a distinctive Christian voice. The first, because we are silent when we should speak. And the second, because we speak, but sound just like everyone else. Surely we need prayer in this moment. He goes on to speak about prayer. How else do we have the wisdom to live faithfully? And I like, this reminds me of what Chandler said, Matt Chandler, when we listened to his clip the other day. At the end, he says, uh, Trevin Wax says, prayer is not the end of our action, but the beginning. The only way we'll be able to respond with truth and justice during this time of crisis. We don't. Uh, he's saying we don't uh, he says we begin with prayer, but that's not where we end. We don't forget to pray. Prayer is important. Kind of like Chandler said uh, when he was talking about Matt, uh, Martin Luther King and others, uh, the church would gather, pray and then go protest out of right. that prayer time. Right, right. And that's a little bit of what Trevin Wax is saying here. And I find that convicting. How much how prayerful am I? Uh, but then the the end of the answer is not prayer. That's the beginning. But then we act and we remain rooted in Christ. And right. out of that conviction, we go out and we seek justice and speak for the marginalized and the such. So I, I think this, this, article- this, this quote from maybe Bruce, he said, we are to show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. I think that actually summarizes it really well for me. Like some of us, we're, maybe we're at the forefront all the time too much, right? Yeah, maybe yeah. it's maybe it's time to pull back. And some of us, our MO is like to hide, to be quiet, to not speak up. And maybe that challenge then is to use your words a little more aggressively, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, coming up next, uh, also, you can find that article at our Facebook page. Go ahead and read it from the Gospel Coalition, the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, 
Uh, we're going to end the show the way that we've uh, just started up doing again with Interweb Insanities. Trying to get a laugh to end the show. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Well, that music can only mean one thing. It's the end of the show. It's Interweb Insanity, where uh, Ian and I read stories found on the internet by our executive producer, Keith Conrad. Uh, sometimes they make us laugh. Sometimes they make us cringe, but they're always a surprise to us. So, Ian, out of Nebraska, the first story, you can go first. Thanks so much for this, Brian. What a gift. Nebraska <laughs> naked man arrested after walking around, flipping off Walmart customers. Oh, off to a strong start. Police arrested. How much do you want to bet there's alcohol involved? Anyone want right, to? There is undoubtedly. All right. Police arrested a 24-year-old naked man Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning, okay, after staffing customers at a North Lincoln Walmart said he was walking around the store and making offensive hand gestures. Okay. Around 9 a.m., the man took off his clothing in the Walmart and began yelling inside the store. Police were called and informed that he had put his shorts on and left the store, running toward the nearby Sam's Club. Okay. He's going from Walmart to Sam's Club, probably for the samples. (laughs) When officers spoke to the man, he again was naked and resisted arrest. I would also probably resist arresting him. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of commentary for this one. Sorry. Yes, they they took him into custody without injury. Police suspected he was under the influence of drugs. There you go. There it is. And medical crews took him to the hospital. He was screened and later released to the Lancaster County Jail on suspicion of... In- okay, why is it suspicion why of indecent <laughs> How is there any suspicion? He was he was naked. And end, end of article. Feels like I'm wearing nothing at all. Oh, next one's out of South Carolina. Wanted couple used gun to steal Pepsi from Pizza Hut. Suspicion to steal from Pizza Hut. (laughs) A search is underway for a man and woman who used a gun to steal a bottle of soda from an area Pizza Hut. The incident uh, on Wednesday, the Richland County Sheriff's Department asked for the community's help identifying the man and woman who it says argued with the restaurant manager before pulling a gun on him and stealing a two liter bottle. Uh, of Pepsi. The manager told the sheriff's department he got into an argument with the man and woman after they came into the restaurant. They complained to the manager that their pizza delivery person did not bring a soda with the rest of their order. During the altercation, both the man and woman walked behind the counter when the man pulled out a gun and the woman took a bottle of Pepsi from the cooler. You filthy criminals. All right, let's go to Wisconsin. Want to go to Wisconsin? I do. Come on, let's do it. Escaped Wallaby wrangled in Wisconsin neighborhood. Are Wallaby... I. Are they local to Wisconsin? Is that? I don't think they are. Okay. Police responded to a Wisconsin neighborhood to help capture a wallaby that had escaped from its owner's yard. There you go. And went for a hop down the road. Also Ooh. did not know wallabies hopped. Mark Combs said his two-year-old wallaby, Hoppy, it's a little on the nose, escaped <laughs> from his yard in Franklin when he and his wife accidentally left the gate open Tuesday. Police responded to the scene to help capture the animal, which was first thought to be a kangaroo before being positively identified as the smaller marsupial. Witnesses captured video of police and neighbors chasing the animal. He's on to me. He's going to try and bite my calf muscle. Oh, we're going back to Florida. Man lets 12-year-old drive Jeep 85 miles per hour. Wow. Uh, A Florida man is facing felony charges after police said he let a 12-year-old girl drive his SUV and told her to speed because he wanted to be, quote, the cool father, even (laughs) though he's not her dad. Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> this is a bad. Yikes. Sean Michelson, age 41, told the arresting officer he is friends with the girl's mother and that the girl and her friend were staying with him for a not, few days. Not anymore. Nope. He said the girl had asked earlier in the day if he could drive his Jeep, so he thought it would be cool. 
and that he was trying to be, quote, a cool father, the police report. <laughs> Michelson also told, here it is, Michelson also told officers he had been drinking. Jupiter officer Craig Yoakum said in his arrest report that he spotted the Jeep making a legal U-turn and then speed away. Why is a 12-year-old up at 12.10 a.m. Monday? Sorry, now I'm doing the commentary. So many questions. He he followed, and the Jeep reached speeds of 85 miles per hour in a 45-mile-per-hour zone before he was able to pull it over. He said when he asked the 12-year-old why he was driving so fast, she said Michelson told her to. What a cool father. Let him go, Lou. Someone going that fast has no time for a ticket. Hey, Brian, you remember really early in the show when we did a story about CarMax and some (laughs) some boys broke in and smashed up a bunch of cars and you were like, I'd be a little proud. And then we got a call. I do. Not early in the history of our show. That was our very first show. (laughs) Was it really? Yes. (laughs) That's exciting. All right. Let's go to Tennessee. Headline reads, this is the biggie. Massive beehive removed from Tennessee house. Oh, gosh. The removal of a giant beehive with roughly 30 feet of honeycomb. What? Wow. The Tennessee home is making the rounds on the Internet. David Glover, the bee rescue and removal with bee rescue and removal, removed the massive hive at a historic house set to be remodeled in the town of Whiteville. It's called Whiteville. (laughs) (sighs) Ah. The heat map of the home looked promising, but the actual removal is what led to the discovery. This is huge, Glover said. This is the biggie. This is the big one. Glover said he removed 30 linear feet plus the 15 inches between the studs. Bees! Bees! Bees in the car! Bees everywhere! God, they're huge! They're ripping my flesh off! Son, uh, roll around! Jamie, me roll around on the ground. Forget that. I'm starting to swell up. Save yourself. Don't be the hero. Frank, I'm allergic to bees. Me too. They're huge and they're sting crazy. We'll come back later and check on you. Get a walk. Save yourself. Your firearms are useless against them. Wow, that's uh, that's terrifying. That's that unbelievable. Terrifying. Oh, nice. That's a good one. I have no either. Uh, I've, I've, I've done better. <laughs> I just want to end the show right now. That's too good. Anyway, if you've got a P, uh, a B pun, go ahead and uh, <laughs> I combine those in a poor way right there. <laughs> yeah, a poor way indeed. Yeah, so a classic end of the show. If you missed any of the show, you can find it on the podcast, especially go listen to our interview with Noah Tolley and uh, others. We're uh, glad that you were able to join us today. Hope you join us tomorrow from 4 until 6 for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.